This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers, listeners, subscribers, and wherever else you're listening to these classes. Especially welcome to all our Zoom listeners, um, watchers, uh, I don't even know um, how to classify fellow humans, um, which again, I don't even know if we could classify as that. Anyways, so it's... I don't even know where to begin for the introduction for this class. So, first of all, it's Pesach is coming up. So, crazy, no? Like, I know women go crazy over uh, Pesach because of the cleaning. So, it gets, it gets like, crazy in that way. Uh, but I'm talking about crazy in a different way. Crazy in, like, the, like, there is, like, huge amount of spiritual potential on Pesach. And um, that being said... Two years ago, we started a series called The Hidden, uh, The Secret Story, The Secret of the Plagues, or something along those lines. And we did a plague a week, and we got a makkah a week, and we got to about, we got to the third, we did the third makkah lice. And last year, the plan was that I was going to continue what I started two years ago. But unfortunately, the, um, the plague of COVID hit us. And I sort of rerouted that, and I thought it was more appropriate to speak about the topics that I spoke about last year uh, for, for that reason. So uh, I, I generally do not like to leave, you know, classes or series unclosed. So we've had, uh, you know, two years ago, we're sort of continuing a class, a series that we've started two years ago. That being said, it is, uh, I, I would strongly recommend to listen to those classes two years ago. It was called The Secret of the Plagues. I'm pretty sure that's what it was called. Um, and there was four classes. There was an introduction, and then there was three classes, one class for each plague, for Dam Akinim. so blood, frogs, and lice, each had its own, uh, its own separate class. The concept in general about, uh, it, it just to understand why even, well, not even why, the, there's two biblical mitzvot on the Sadal night. Number one is eating matzah. Number two is recounting the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Is you have to recount the story of the, of the Exodus of Egypt. So, we went, I think it was three years ago, when we went through the whole series, with the whole story on, through a series, on the story, the hidden story of Yitzhak Time, which I strongly recommend, again, people to, to listen to. This is not, this is nice that someone listens to it once. People generally hear about this topic and be like, oh, this topic, I already know about it. There's no, I don't need to, uh, I don't need to learn about it. Uh, that's, that's wrong on every account, but especially on uh, the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because literally the mitzvah is to recount the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Now, if it was true that once you say, oh, I know the story already, it's okay, let's move on to a different topic, then we wouldn't be having this mitzvah every single year, because as soon as you check this mitzvah one time, you're good, you know the story already. But rather, it is important, imperative, um, and very, very particular that we understand this mitzvah, we recount the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim to the level that we are able to, and how do we get to a level of where we should be is by preparing for it, like you prepare for anything in life. So with that being said, I strongly recommend people to prepare for what you are, uh, for what you're, for the seddah that's coming up. Men, women, and children, the mitzvah over here is the same. The, generally speaking, when, um, when children come to, especially children that went to yeshiva, when they come to the seddah, 
they start telling over the parent. It's, it's the, the mitzvah is vihigata levincha. You should tell over to your children. Unfortunately, now it got switched around. Vihigata lavicha. Now you tell over the parents. Now the, par- the children are over there and telling over the parents exactly what they learned in school, which is great, by the way, and they should do that. But there is a mitzvah also that the father and the mother should go and tell over the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim to the children. And how are you going to tell it over if you don't know? And this is something that I said before. Uh, and, and by the way, what I plan on doing is, because we did it two years ago, I want to give a, a brief introduction of an introduction that we already gave two years ago. So there's going to be a very short like, just overlap just so that we're all on the same page for all those who didn't uh, listen to those previous classes. So the... Um, you know, the, 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 when you have the kids come over to the, to the table, they, you have to go and entertain them. And, I, you know, I gotta say when, about me or my kids, I was speaking only for my family, like, if you're gonna be starting telling the deep devout Torah with all the numerical values, and you're gonna bring back down the Arizal the Zohar and any other Kabbalist master that you know, and you're gonna plug it in, you're gonna go over there, and you're gonna go to levels that you've never experienced before, the kids are gonna be going like, huh? What's going on? I mean, you'll probably, well, not you, because you know what you're saying. Uh, but everybody else will be going, huh? Nobody knows what's, what's going on. Sometimes people go too deep, and nobody knows what they're saying. Sometimes people go too deep, and even they themselves don't know what they're saying. But that's a different story in its entirety. The idea is that you have to go and educate the children on this night. And that's why my um, method has been for the past few years, is that when, wherever I am for the Saturday night, if someone asks me to say something, uh, and generally that happens in many places where I go. Uh, I say, let other people speak during this time, during the time where everyone's speaking in the setup. When it comes to the meal, that's when I speak. That's when everyone's eating. I go and I take, I have a special book. I have to show it to you, maybe next week, or no, or two weeks, I'll take it out. I have to show you, there's a special book that I use. It's a, a picture book on the 10 Makos. And during the meal, usually what I do is I have wherever all the children, either it's my, it's for sure my children, but any other children that are around the table all gather around while all the adults eat, and I go through the ten makot. That's what I do. If, if I do the same set on the same place, so five makot one night, five makot another night, and we go through it. And we speak about all these different concepts, and it gauges the children, and it teaches the children, and I ask questions, and then what they remember from last year. And, and we go into an engaging manner. Why? And specifically the ten makot. Why? Because this is something that's a very, very, not only it's entertaining for the kids, but there are other reasons for it. And what are the reasons for it? So the questions that we have to ask as we begin this, this topic is why specifically Ten Makot did God go and give to the Egyptians? So we know that Paro denied the existence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He denied the existence of God. And the, the, the words that Paro used, Mi Hashem asher eshma bekolo. Who is God that I should listen to his voice? Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Hakon come over to Paro. And they say, let the Jewish people leave. And Paul says, why? Who said, who, who said I should leave? He says, oh God, God said that you should leave. He said, who is this God I've never, that I should listen to him? I've never heard about this God. So Paul, what Paul did is Paul denied the existence of God. Now, when Paul denied the existence of God, he denied the whole aspect, the, the whole, that God created the world, the whole existence of God's creation to, to, from its beginning to its end. Now, the... World was created with ten ma'amarot. The Mishnah and Perkei Avot says, "Ba'asara ma'amarot nivra olam." With ten sayings, the world was created. Ten sayings again. This is ten times God said something, and it came to being. And you look in the in the in the in the beginning of Bereshit when it says, "Vayomer Hashem," and Hashem said, "That is one saying." 
So you have, you look in the first chapter of Bereshit, you have nine times where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Vayomel, that is a tenth, that is nine sayings, and the tenth one is, is for Bereshit. Bereshit is also counted as a saying. So the world was created, the Mishnah tells us, in ten sayings. Because Paro denied God, who created the world in ten sayings, God then went and gave the Paro ten plagues, connected, uh, uh, parallel to the ten sayings that God created the world. The Chadush Arim brings it one step further. And says, by the way, this you don't have to tell the children. The children are going to be, you know, a lot of this concept. But just so that you understand how important this is. The Chadush Arim goes and says that there was ten makot corresponding to the ten ma'amarot, to the ten sayings. And this was later transformed to the Asarat Adibot, the ten commandments. And I even saw somewhere, and I'm still looking for it, that you can even plug in another ten, which is a ten test of Avraham. Meaning, which I, I have to look at that. That would be fascinating to do a class on that. I'm still, you know, uh, gathering, uh, you know, learning research on, on that. Meaning that there's ten plagues corresponding to ten sayings, corresponding to the ten commandments, corresponding to the ten, ten uh, tests of Abraham um, Avinu. But anyways, the way that Or Gedaliah goes and, and explains this is that when God said another uh, utterance, another saying, by by the creation, which each saying sort of Hashem covered himself. Put, put think of it as Hashem put a cloak, uh, a coat over himself and hid himself. And when he was finished, so the first saying he put on one covering, second saying he put on another covering, and so on and so forth. By the time Hakadosh Baruch Hu finished creating the world, it was ten coverings over over Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Meaning that if you were to look into the world, you would not be able to see God. Now. The ten makot, each of the ten makot, what God did was, as God revealed himself one makah after another makah, God took over one cloak after another cloak, revealing himself, showing the, his existence to the world. Now, the way to understand this is that if you put on ten coats, so which coat are you taking off first? You're taking off the tenth coat for, first, right? If you put on ten coats, the first one that's coming off is the tenth. The ne- next one that you're coming off is the ninth, and so on and so forth. So this, this is the way that it corresponds to the mamal, to the sayings, versus to the, to the plagues. The ninth makad, the easiest one to explain, is corresponding to the second saying, second vayomel, which is what? Vayomel Hashem yihi oh, let there be light. What is the ninth makad? Darkness. That's the, the night that, oh, Yo, and God removes the darkness. You have also the tenth makam, which is corresponding to Bereshit Baradokim. This is that a God, God created the world. What is the tenth makam? Tenth makam is makat pechorot. Makat pechorot is the killing of the firstborn. So when God went and killed the firstborn, it, he didn't send an angel. It says, Anihu Only God himself went, because Bereshit Baradokim, only God himself created the world. God himself went and did makat pechorot. So the entire way that it worked is that there was ten coverings from the ten sayings. Then there was the ten plagues which remove each of these coverings. And once you remove the coverings, now we can start with the Asarat Adibot, Anochi Hashem Alokecha. I am Hashem your God, now because that corresponds, you know, to everything basically. If you didn't understand a word that I just said, don't worry, <laughs> you'll, you know, you'll get the rest. It's a little bit hard at the beginning, just, just bear with me. The purpose of the ten plagues was not merely just to punish the Egyptians. The purpose was to demonstrate that God exists. As it says in Shemot, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, it says, That you should know, you should know that I am God in the midst of the earth. And the Ramban goes, Nachmanani goes, in Shemot chapter 31, verse 16, goes and it says, There are many different types of heretics. There are many different types of people that don't believe 
in uh, Hashem to a certain level, each one into their own level. And the Ramban cat- classifies them into three different categories. You have category number one, that people that think that God didn't create the world. Category number two, that maybe he did create the world, but they don't believe in divine providence. They don't believe that God intervenes into the world, meaning that he created the world, step back, and let the world with nature carry its course. Then there's a third category where they may believe that God created the world, and they may believe that God has divine providence, meaning that he intervenes in the world, but he doesn't have absolute power. He doesn't have the ability to change nature. So according to these types of, of heretics, people that don't believe in God to certain levels, the miracles of Egypt, of the, of the Exodus, specifically speaking about the Ten Makot, these correspond to take out all of these, uh, all of these uh, disbeliefs or um, heres- heretical uh, you know, ideas. The Malbum goes and says that you have three concepts, and then you have three sets of Makot. The Makot are, cat- are separated into three sets. There is the first three, then you have four, five, six, then you have seven, eight, nine, ten, it's in its own category. So you have three till nine, and then tenth in its own category. The Malbum says the first set of three, that those are its goal of those, of those Makot, is to go and prove the people that say that there is no such thing as a God. And that's why it says by Makat Dam, for example, in, in, uh, in Exodus, cha- in Shemot, chapter uh, 7, verse 17, it says, With this you will know that I am God. What is with this you will know? Now you'll know that I am a God. That God's sort of introducing himself. The second set of three shows that not only God exists, but God has the power and authority to control the world. By the way, this is, we're starting on the second set of three. That's what we're going to be starting on today. The second set of three is that God has direct involvement. How, where do we see that, that this concept is being proven? So when you look at, um, in Shemot, and what's actually Pastor Vayera, uh, general, just so people understand, whoever's looking up, uh, you know, sources, when I say Shemot or Exodus, I say the whole Sefer Shemot, instead of going to specific, um, you know, Parshiot. So in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, if you want to look exact Parshiot, it's in Parshiot Vayera. When it speaks about the wild beast, which is a topic that we're speaking about tonight, what does it say when Moshe warned Paro? Uh, in the name of Hashem, he said, Tomorrow, this will be a sign. This will sign will come. And also in Devel, it says, Hashem In chapter 9, verse 5. It says, Tomorrow will happen. Why is it that God gave the message that's saying that tomorrow the, the plague is going to begin? Because right now, the purpose of these plagues is to show that God has control over the world. Meaning that God could decide when exactly the plague will start, when it will end. So it says specifically tomorrow, not that it's just going to start now. Because maybe you could say, okay, there's a special power that's going on, it's going to start around this time. So God put a specific time that it says tomorrow specifically. And this is why it says, also in, in Shemot chapter 8, verse 18, What is it saying over here? Now you're going to know that I am in the midst of the land. What is the midst of the land? Says the Shlaha Kodosh. It's referring to that, that it shows that God is active with the laws of nature. God has, has the ability to manipulate the laws of nature. So that is the second category. If you're still lost, don't worry about it. Bear with me. The third set shows that God has absolute power. And this shows that how God defies nature. Hail and rain, for example, uh, which is not hail and rain, fire and water, which is in hail, which is rain, comes together. I'm a few steps, uh, you know, all over the place. 
Those who say that God is not all-powerful, God here shows that He's able to take two opposite extremes, two different elements that go and oppose each other, diametrically oppose each other, and put them together. It shows that God is also, could defy the laws of nature. So, we over here, we, can't, we, we split it up into three groups. The first group of three Makot plagues, God created the world. The second group, that there is divine supervision. The third group is God has unlimited power. Another brief bit of an introduction is just so uh, you know if you're not familiar the way that the plagues work is that not every plague of the 10 plagues that God go and give a warning to Paro the way that it worked it was warning warning no warning so two plagues there was a warning third plague there was no warning because that was lesson number one then God went to lesson number two you don't warn more than twice. So more. So God, the first lesson, when we were focusing on the lesson that God created the world, so there was warning, no warning. Now there's a new lesson. Now there's a lesson, wild animals. Oh, wild animal, animals and the epidemic with the, with the animal's death, those are, the, those are uh, plagues four and five, warning. And then you have the blisters, no warning. Then you have hail and lake is warning, darkness, no warning. The same, the same method that it goes, because each one is teaching a different thing, and you don't warn more than twice. Okay. Oh, one final, uh, two final points. Number one is that the makot lasted for a month. There's a question if there was a warning for a week, and that there was not a question. There's a difference of opinion if the war, if the plagues lasted for a week and there was a warning for three weeks, or vice versa, the plagues lasted for three weeks and there was warning for one week. And the final point of the introduction is that when we're reading over these makot and we are. Uh, you know, reading the destruction of Egyptians, there's a concept in the Torah that it says in Mishlei, in Proverbs, chapter 24, verse 17, When your enemy falls, don't rejoice. Meaning that even though the Egyptians deserved the ten plagues, and even though they, they deserved the suffering that was coming to them, it's still not something that we should be exalted by, you know, feel, feel happy about that. To sort to. Happy was not a good word. But you shouldn't exult. That was, that was a, uh, rejoice maybe is a better word. And this is why every time when we count the makot, we take out, we drip out a little bit of wine. We drip out a little bit of wine. Wine denotes happiness, joy. So we remove a little bit of, of the wine each time when we're saying a makot, because even though they deserved it and they did, needed to get what they were getting, it's still something that it's not something that we're like, aha, you got it in your face. I don't know Egyptian name. I was about to say Egyptian name, but I don't know Egyptian. I, I, wow. What's Egyptian? What's a Pharaoh's name? Oh my gosh. It's, watch. It's going to come in much later. Okay. Um, now it's bothering me. Okay. If anybody knows Egyptian name, please post it in the comment because this is going to drive me crazy. Pharaoh. Far, oh my gosh. Pharisees. Oh my. I don't know why it's going to do this. Anyways. Okay. These are conversations that I should have in my mind, but I leave it. Ramses, thank you. Ah, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, you know when you have an itch, and there is a certain ganeden that you get when you scratch the itch. Sometimes you have an itch in your brain, and that is where you want to say something, and you're like, "What is the word that I'm looking for?" And you can't do it. It's like an itch. But when you finally get that itch, and that itch was Ramses. So thank you, uh, whoever was that. Uh, I think it was uh, Adalia. Thank you very much for uh, for sending that. It was going to bother me for a while. Okay, now that we've had my issues resolved, now we can come up to the topic at hand. So now we're speaking about the fourth makah, the fourth plague, and that is the plague of wild animals. 
Uh, I was about to say a very fun plague, but I can't say a very fun plague, but it's a very entertaining plague when you go and you, and you uh, uh, learn about it. The, um, the utterance, the, the ma'amar, the, the, the vayomer that it corresponds to from the ten sayings, this is a corresponding to Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. It says, vayomer elokim, and God says, ha'aretz nefesh Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. Cattle, like creeping things, and the beasts of the earth should come out of its kind, and it was vayichein, and it was so. Says the Maharal, this verse, this is what the corresponding to the, to the wild animals, to, to Makkah number four is. So, the Makkah starts off with a warning. Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, by the way, now it's going to get a lot easier. Whoever was lost until now, now you could focus. That until now was fine. And by the way, if you were lost in what I said until now, except for my little craziness with uh, Ramses, uh, but be, besides that, if you are lost, I would strongly recommend to review the first class that we gave in this series, which was two years ago, which was the introduction to the secret of the plagues or something along those lines. Uh, because that's really why I go into depth in this, and I think that's a, that, that really gives you a good understanding of how we're going to present this information. So the fourth Makkah starts off with a warning. Moshe Rabbeinu goes and warns Paro. Now, what you remember or what you don't remember, Paro uh, pretended to be a god. And in order for him to be a god, a god doesn't have bodily needs. So he made a very, very, very important rule in Egypt. No one's allowed to go out in the morning out of their house. Why? It doesn't matter. The god of Egypt, which is Paro, said so. And the reason that Paro did that is that he needed to go to the bathroom. But he can't show his people's that he goes to the bathroom, because then it says, oh, wait a minute, you're going to the bathroom, then how are you a god? So what he did was, is early in the morning, he'd go into the Nile, and in the Nile, he would do his business, as they would say. Right? And this, that's where he was, uh, you know, took care of his, you know, his, his business. Let's just leave it at that. Moshe Rabbeinu would go and confront him while he was doing his business. And... Paro realized this because it happened previously in the previous plague. So Paro changed his routine. He changed the time when he was going to go to the bathroom in the Nile. And Hashem goes over to Moshe Rabbeinu and tells him exactly what time and place Paro changed the location to be. He says, go warn him again over there. So Moshe Rabbeinu goes and he confronts Paro right when he's in the middle of tending to his bodily needs in the Nile River. And he comes in and he says, Paro, I have a message from God. And Paro's like, whoa, who's there? He's like, Occupado, you know, someone's in here. By the way, just as a side note, you ever realize that when you go into the bathroom and you, well, not you, somebody, because whatever, nobody goes to the bathroom and whatever, blah, blah, blah. Someone goes into the bathroom, knocks on a stall. Does the person say, I am in here? Never. It's the only place that people refer to themselves in third person. I'm not in here. Someone is in here. You know, like, occupied. Who says occupied? Now, what is occupied? It became such a normal thing that airplanes put occupied on the, on the, you know, on the bathroom doors. When do we speak like this? When do you go and imagine you're sitting and you're on a roller coaster and there's another guy that's trying to go and get onto the roller coaster. You're like, occupied? Be like, no, I'm sitting over here. Are you going to be like, someone's sitting over here? No, I'd be like, excuse me, I'm sitting over here. So why is it, very good question, right? We have to understand this question. No, okay. Why is it when you knock on the bathroom door, they don't say, I am in here, someone is in here. I don't know who. 
<laughs> Don't ask me, but someone's in this bathroom. Why is it? Because it's, em- it's an embarrassing act that people have to do. It's a human act that people have to do. So it's embarrassing, so you don't want to say, I'm in here. You say, someone's in here. You says occupied or occupado, depending on where you're located. And this idea sort of removes a little bit of embarrassment that you have. Paro, this is where Moshe gets to Paro, right where he's middle of the, oh, you think you're a God? I'm gonna, t- God says, I'm gonna show you how godly you think you are. When you're in occupado territory, when you're in someone's in here, third, you know, person saying, that's when, that's when Moshe Rabbeinu is gonna go and going to, let's call it humble Paro. So Moshe Rabbeinu goes to Paro. Paro is trying to say, occupied, someone's in here, the God of, whatever, whatever language that he was using. And Moshe Rabbeinu goes in and he says, uh, you know, the God of the Jews, he's like, wait, Paul stops him. He's like, wait, what are you doing? He says, can you see that I'm attending my needs over here? Like, I'm, I'm doing my business. Apparently, that's a word I'm going to con- continue using now. <laughs> he says, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of, uh, of doing stuff over here. What, what, what you know, can you, can you wait? And Moshe Rabbeinu goes, wait a minute. He says, aren't you a God? Aren't, don't you tell all your people you're a God? Do God does uh, do business? And uh, Paro says, listen, they believe whatever I tell them. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, whatever you tell them is fine, but I got a message from God. And God says that in exactly one day, tomorrow there's going to be, again, remember, this is God showing that he's overruling the entire nature. So God's saying, tomorrow there is going to be a plague. What is the plague? Moshe Rabbeinu warns Paro. There's going to be a mixed group of wild animals, birds of prey and everything that's going to be coming, nothing like you have ever seen before, coming to Egypt. Unless you let the Jewish people go. If you let the Jewish people go, no plague. So Paul goes, he was in the middle of really reading the Daily Nile, and he's like, I heard what you're saying, I'm in the middle of reading my horoscope, um, you know, please leave, I need my privacy at this uh, point in time puts his curtain back, or whatever it is that he had over there, you know, floating, and he continues. He thought that he was done with it, but there was something very, very different that happened this Makan than all other Makot. Paro was in the Nile, doing his business. I, every time I try to think of a different word, but I'm like, there's nothing better than doing your business. So, he was doing his business, and God, and I'm going to try to make this as gentle as possible, and as not as Difficult to hear on the ears as possible. But he was going to the bathroom and he was pushing. And his intestines protruded outside from the ins- his Let's just leave it like this. His insides came outside. But the part that was supposed to stay inside came outside. Uh, and I think you follow me at this point in time. Now, if that wasn't painful enough, there was rats that came in from every direction. And um, rats have little sharp teeth. And with their little sharp teeth, they started doing a sort of liposuction on Paro's insides, which were now outsides. And Paro did not like that. It didn't feel so good. So he started screaming and shrieking like a little girl. And the Egyptians started hearing, you know, someone screaming, like a little girl, so they started, you know, running out. By the way, Metoshin doesn't say like a little girl. That was my own interpretation of it. He was just screaming. Um, but in my mind, it was a little girl. So he starts screaming and shrieking on the top of his lungs. Everybody starts rushing out to the Nile, see what's the commotion about over here. And they see Paro doing his business with his insides on his outsides and the rats 
eating his insides, which are on the outside. Okay, you get what I'm saying. Basically, it was not a good scene. And from this, like, Parot returned to his palace so humiliated, so, like, downtrodden, that he turned his heart to be very, very stubborn. He hardened his heart and decided that he's not going to let the Jewish people go. So, the plague began. And the plague came from, the, the was wild animals that traveled across from all over the world, came to Egypt. And across, there was, like, a sort of sudden migration of, like, wild animals. The miracles, one of the miracles, was that they did not attack Goshen. They passed through the Jewish land, the Jewish land of Goshen, but they did not attack anybody in Goshen. Now, even though the plague of blood and frogs also did not affect Goshen, but the Egyptians thought of this more like a coincidence, because the Egyptian land was surrounding the Nile, the Goshen was further out. So the plague of blood and frogs came from the Nile. So they figured the people that are surrounding it, those are the ones that are going to be affected. That's why it made sense that the Jews did not get affected by the plague of frogs to a certain extent and blood because they were further away. But the, the center where the Nile was, everybody around it got affected. But over here, the, the animals were coming from all over the world. They were coming from all different directions. And they even passed through the Jewish land. They passed through Goshen. And still they did not harm, they did not touch, they did not bother any single Jew. The, the Pasuk tells us furthermore, in Shemot chapter 8 verse 17, it said that when the wild animals passed through, it says, The the land that was under them also, it says, and also the land that was under them, meaning that there was something that changed upon the ground. So there's a few interpretations of this. Number one, what happened if, let's say, Egyptian was, uh, you know, was going on a cruise, right? They traveled, they were traveling, they, were, they went abroad. And uh, the place where the Egyptian went, the land of where the Egyptian went, even though they weren't in Egypt, they were also attacked by wild animals. Meaning it was sort of like a, um, like a radar sensing, that the wild animals pinpointed exactly where, who's the Egyptian, regardless of whether the Egyptian was in Egypt, or in South America, or in the Caribbean, bathing in the sun. Whatever it was, the animals went and, and, and pinpointed them. So the land, the land that they were on, meaning that wherever the Egyptians are, whichever land, that's where the wild animals came. But there's another interpretation. The Chavetz Chaim goes and says that Paro wasn't, when Moshe Rabbeinu said, listen, there's going to be wild animals that are going to come and attack you. So Paro wasn't so afraid about that, because you think about it one way. If it's going to be the local wild animals, the ones that we're aware of, we're familiar with, all right, we're not so worried about that. We know how to deal with those. But if it's wild animals that are from further away, then also we don't have so much to worry about it, because they're not in their native land. When an animal is not in their native land, they don't feel comfortable to attack. They feel very discombobulated. They're, no, they're not acting like as if they're acting in their natural habitat. So we could deal with them also. So Paro in his mind was saying, okay, we could figure something out. It's not the biggest deal. So what happened was, is when, the, when the wild animals came from faraway lands, the land itself changed to make the animal feel comfortable wherever the animal was on. It changed the land, its texture, its climate, so that the animals would feel at home and would be able to feel free to attack as if they would have attacked if they would have been on their home ground, in their native soil. This also goes for weather. Some animals deal in the hot, some animals deal in the cold. So everything changed with them. Different types of climate um, would would make, maybe they wouldn't attack. If, let's say, a polar bear would be too hot, maybe they wouldn't be able to go and attack. If you have, uh, you know, things in the Sahara Desert that they come over, you know, into, into cold, maybe they won't attack. So 
the temper, everything changed around it. Meaning that if you're able to picture this, and, and by the way, if you could use your imagination for the plagues, it, it's it's fascinating when you learn about all the midrashim. Meaning that you have a tiger from the African jungle, and then you have a polar bear from the far, you know, the the, the north region where they're more colder, are running side by side, and the land is also changing. The temperature is also t- changing. Things were were something that it looked like you must have been like on some severe heavy medication in order to begin to to uh, like like comprehend what you're what you're seeing over here. The change of weather also affected the surrounding area. So meaning that the Egyptians had cold, warm, hot, humid, dry, all these things back and forth. And what happens is when you change temperature back and forth, it's you know people can get sick. And I know there's a thing that I know specifically with Russians, especially if they go to a, a sauna, a banya, whatever it is, they go from hot to cold very quickly. I don't remember the reason. The one in Russia once explained to me there's a reason behind it. Um, but according to the nature of the body, it's not good to change drastically the temperature because it could cause you to get sick. Maybe in some certain senses it's fine. I don't know. Maybe it is. But in generally, when you have, you're changing back and forth at different, uh, um, different temperatures at, at a, two opposing ends, it's very bad for the body. And a lot of Egyptians got sick from that drastic change. The, you have also, furthermore, you have certain animals that they feel comfortable in closed spaces. You have other animals in the wide open areas. So the, the animals in the closed spaces would attack people in closed places, and the, the animals that needed wide open areas would attack people in the wide open areas. It was sort of something that there was no way that even if you had a group of wild animals run through, it would have been able to happen. There's, this showed that there had to be some god, some, some being orchestrating everything from on top, changing the weather, changing the texture, changing the, the, the humidity level. There's so many aspects that need to be changed over here. But we learn over here a very important lesson. That in order for the animals to thrive in their own natural animalistic habits, they needed to feel comfortable. They needed to feel at home, and that's when they're able to excel at doing what they do best. So the lesson is also for children. That children, and really it's not only children, it's really adults also, that if you want to grow, if you want a child to grow, then a child, a student has to be comfortable. If you want to grow, you have to be in a comfortable habitat. You have to feel that the per, you, you know, you're accepted. That you have to feel that you have the ability to be, to, to open up. If you're feeling tense and nervous and unsecure, you will, na- you'll automatically you withdraw and you wouldn't able, be able to excel to be the best that you can be. Very important for children. Children have to feel accepted. They have to feel, you know, liked. They have to feel that they are able to open, that they're able to, to grow. Because if not, they're going to close it and they're not going to be able to grow. So going back to, to the wild animals, you have over here, the animals are coming in. And they're coming in from every area. You're having tropical rainforest animals are running side by side by things from the polar regions. And if you just could, you know, picture this, you have lions and bears running next to hyenas and wolves, pigs and donkeys next to kangaroos and foxes, rats and mice next to snakes and scorpions, eagles next to owls, ostriches. You also have the mosquitoes, the bees, the hornets. You have so many, in fact, the skies were so filled with, with flying creatures that it darkened the skies. And, the big kicker that came back was those pesty frogs and those lice also came back again. 
they talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? After they just got over of their difficult plagues with the frogs, with the lice, now they too come back. The Maghreb Dubna goes and explains this that in, a, in a mashal, that there was, um, the, you know, in the olden days when you used to have a Jewish wedding, they used to have a separate table for the poor people that they would be able to enjoy the wedding and be able to, to you know, it's a simcha for the whole town. So the poor people would come and they would have a meal. So there was one particular rich man that he didn't want the poor people to sort of, you know, go off the style of the wedding. It was a very high style. So he decided he's going to make a special, like, misibah, uh, special party for the poor people the day before the wedding. Think of it as a rehearsal, rehearsal dinner for the poor people. This way the poor people have the, the party in this. And then the real party is going to be the next day. So... That's what happened. He ha- he made this this uh, party the the day before the wedding, and all the poor people came. Then the next day, when the big wedding came in, he saw a bunch of poor people coming back in. He's like, I don't understand what's going on over here. He says, you know, you had the party yesterday, and the poor people said, yeah, yesterday we came because we're poor. Today we're coming because we're distant relatives. So we're coming not because we're poor. We're coming for, for because we're distant relatives. So the frogs and the lies said, yeah, yesterday, last time we came, we had our own, you know, makah. But now, we're, what are we doing? We're part of the same group. We're part of the same animals. Of course, we're going to come back again. To think about it, you know, after you go get over something, like some, when somebody can be extremely, extremely scared of a bee, but they won't be scared of a wolf. Why? Because they had a bad, a bee once bit them in their eye. Whatever it was. And it, and it swelled up, and they were able to see into the future. It was just not whatever happened. And they were scared death to a bee, but they're not scared about the wolf. They never had to deal with it. So the frogs caused such a traumatic experience to the Egyptians. And now when they came, they could have seen a lion, but they saw the frog. They were like, no! You know, Roger, who's the frog? Whatever it was, the frog from whatever. You know, all right, here's the itch again. Somebody please help me. Hermit the frog, right? Thank you. Somebody, please. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what's going on today. Whatever it was, the frog come back and they were like, no, Hermit is here. I can't believe it. Oh no, the, the lion I don't care about. So it caused them so much stress, so much traumatic, uh, uh, you know, that, that it, it bothered them to such a high, to such a high level, they couldn't comprehend, couldn't know what to do with themselves. So that's scary enough. To see the things that you just passed over, I'll tell you what's even more, in my opinion, what is even more scary. That Hashem made it that you had those those timid creatures, those animals that were very kind, very nice and fluffy, those animals that are just, you know, you see them, you're like, oh, because you're a girl. Generally, guys would not do that, but whatever. You see them, you'll be like, oh, such a, such a cute little whatever animal, a bunny, right? Such a cute little bunny. I'll look at that cute, white, pure white bunny. And... What God did is that God made these timid creatures, let's use the word ferocious, you know, towards it. So you have this cute bunny that all of a sudden has like sharp claws, sharp teeth. It's like drooling and growling. Has like these dangerous eyes. In fact, it has like a scar across its eye. It's battle wounds. He's got like, you know, scars across his, across his chest. His muscles from the little bunny is popping out. He's got a few tattoos of eye drops going down from all the people he killed. He's got a tattoo of mom on his arm. You know, like a real tough guy. And he's coming over there, and you see this little bunny that looks like that. In my mind, that takes the cake. Like that, oh, that's what, that's scary. Like the lion, yeah, I know the lion. 
but why is this buddy doing pull-ups right now and doing sit-ups? Like, what's going on? I think he's injecting steroids as I am looking at it. Like, what is going on? You have this little, timid, cute creature that all of a sudden became ferocious. So it wasn't just like wild animals came in and wild and beers and tigers and beers, oh my, or whatever, came in and they were like, I'm going to eat you. No, no, no. It was like from all angles. It was psychological warfare at this point. From all angles, it was coming in, crashing into them. The Egyptians discovered, though, that if they barricade themselves into their homes, they can't, nobody's going to be able to come in. They are going to be able to prevent the wild animals from coming in. So... What happened was is that Hashem caused a, a sea monster. From what it, the explanations of the Torah, it seems like it was something like a giant squid that came up with, it had numerous, very large arms, and it came out of the, out of the Nile. And what had happened was is that it started, putting, it started going on the roofs of the Egyptians and started ripping off the roofs or, or pulling its arms in through the top floor and going down to the bottom and opening the doors. It was basically opening up anything that the Egyptians barricaded. But while this giant sea monster is ripping up the, the, their homes, the snakes, the scorpions, the insects realized that they can't get into the Egyptians' home and they had a target, target acquired. The target is in the home, so they started burrowing under the ground. So they have over here, which if you could just picture the scene, is you have, you know, a huge tentacle just like going in your house, opening doors. And at the same point in time, you see like, you know, a little snake starting to come out from under the ground over there. And then you look at another corner and there's a rat. And then you have another corner, there's a frog. And then you have the fluffy bunny, you know, is coming in with all its tattoos and its gang members with chains and knives, it's coming in over there, it, they, they were, they had, there was nowhere to run. There was nowhere to run, nowhere for them to go. The animals settled in, and initially, you think the attack is initially, it's, a, it's great, but the, 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 the plague lasted for a while. So what happened was, the animals, when the animals went to sleep in the day, then all of a sudden the night animals woke up. And then the night animals, meaning that it didn't give the Egyptians any rest. It was around the clock. And the Egyptians started begging the Jews, please help us. They wanted to go home. They wanted to barricade themselves. They said, walk with us. They went to the Jews, walk with us. They knew in the plague of the blood that if I buy something from you, I'll be saved. So they told the Egyptians, if you walk next to me, maybe I'll be saved. So the Egyptians walked, they walked next to the Jews, but the animals had such good sensing that they were able to know who was Egyptian, who was a Jew, and the animals hurt the Egyptians and didn't bother the, you know, the Jews at all. Talk about going to a safari. Right? Forget about being in a jeep. You're walking over there and the lion is right next to you and it doesn't touch you. Can there be a bigger miracle that the lion, you're walking over there, the lion is attacking the person to your right, the person to your left, but doesn't even look twice at you. Doesn't even, to the point that the Jews weren't even scared, weren't scared of the animals. The Jews were also in charge of taking care of the children, the Egyptian children. And the Egyptians didn't say, hey, take care of one child. They gave them a bunch of children. It says, go take care of all these children. And it'll be very, very difficult. And the animals came, and they, one monkey grabbed this child, another bear grabbed this child. And when, they, when the Jews get back with all the children, there's no, none of the children left. The Egyptians are where the children are. Be like, what can I tell you? The bear got that one. The lion got that one. The tiger got that one. The ostrich grabbed this one. The crocodile grabbed this one. I, there, none of them is left. None, none of them is left anymore. The animals, as they were going through the land, they also destroyed the land. They besides the trampling, we know that the temperature changed it. So the temperature also ruined the land itself. So the crops were getting ruined. The people's houses were getting ruined. People were were you know dying during this uh, during this plague. 
Now we have to figure out what is the measure. Everything that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does is midah keneged midah. Everything that God does is measure for measure. So what did the Egyptians do to deserve the wild animals? So there's many, many reasons. We're going to go through all of them, B'zal Hashem. Number one, the Egyptians behaved like wild animals. You behave like wild animals? Here, let me send you some wild animals. Also, the number two, the Egyptians went and they forced the Jewish people to capture wild beasts for their sporting, you know, they had sporting events with wild animals. So they go to the Jew and say, hey, by the way, go catch me a tiger. Go to the Jew, go catch me a crocodile. And they would take the, the, these crocs and the, the tigers and they would use them either for avodah idolatrous uh, rituals, or in sporting events. But the Jews, when they tried to go and capture these things, the, many of them died at the hands of the crocodiles or the tigers or whatever it is that they needed to, to, to capture. So measure for measure, you send the Jewish people to go and deal with wild animals, now the wild animals are going to come and deal with you. They also... The Egyptians, number three, the Egyptians forced the, the Jewish laborers to go and tend to their animals. It says, oh, you want the Jewish people to go and, and, and work for your, for your animals? Now the God's animal is going to come and are going to work for you. On you, better yet. Number four, the Egyptians were, were very immoral and promiscuous people. And because of that, there was a lot of adultery that was going on and the lineage was mixed. So because of that, there was a mixed group of animals. It wasn't just one particular, it wasn't just lions that came. It, wasn't, it was a mixed group specifically because the Egyptians mixed amongst themselves. Also, the, the next one is the Egyptians wanted to dilute the, the genealogy of the Jewish people. And this is what they tried doing by killing the males. They wanted to kill all the males so they would be able to marry the females and this way sort of dilute the Jewish population. So also, you want to dilute, you wanted to mix and match over here. God mixed and matched all the wild animals. Furthermore, the next one is that the Egyptians sent through the Jewish babies into the, into the sea and the, into the wildlife and, the, and unfortunately, you know, Things happen. So because of that, you wanted the Jewish children to be devoured by animals. Now your children are going to be devoured by animals. The next one is the Egyptians also used to take, force the Jewish people to take care of, of large amounts of, of Egyptian babies. And it's regarding from nursing to watching to babysitting to entertain, whatever, all areas. So now because of that, measure for measure, so you caused them hardship with your children. Now your children are going to be missing, gone, and who knows what from the wild animals. Additionally, the Egyptians instilled a, a significant amount of fear on the Jews. So now the animals instilled fear on the Egyptians. Next one is the Egyptians band together to torture the Jews. So now the animals bound together, they sort of united. You had animals that usually are diametrically opposed to each other. Animals that are against each other, that fight against each other. They united together to fight one common enemy, and that enemy was the Egyptians. The Egyptians would also snatch away Jewish children from their mothers. So now the children, the Egyptian children were, tra- were snatched away from the, from the mothers of the Egyptians themselves. So everything went measure for measure. But Victor Miller also goes on and says that Hashem ordained orderliness in the world. That, you know, animals in general would refuse to mate out of their species, out of their kind. Animals, same animals will mate with the same animals. And even furthermore, there's a certain, you know, cycle that God made it that there are certain animals that will eat other species and sort of protecting the world from basically an imbalance. Everything God created was a very, very, uh, you know, strong balance. That's why you have certain places in the world, Israel back at some one point in time, there was a high population of a certain animal, so they, they infused a lot of cats into, into Israel. And then there's a lot of cats, whatever. So you have all this balance that people are trying to make. God created the world with a certain type of balance. What the Egyptians um, were trying to do 
is that they were trying to mix in with the with the Jewish nation. It says in Bamidbar chapter 23 verse 9, it says that the Jewish nation, Hen Am Levadad Yishkon. The Jewish nation is a nation that dwells alone. We don't mix, we don't intermarry, we don't assimilate, we dwell alone. Israel is supposed to remain aloof, away from all alien influence. Because the Egyptians were causing the Jewish people to have kept enforced contacts with the Egyptians, they were refusing them to leave, this was a frustration of Hashem's plan of keeping the Jewish nation alone. So because they were keeping things that they weren't should be together, now God created things that shouldn't be together and went and attacked the uh, and attacked Paro. So as, as this plague was going on and it was getting very, very, very bad, Paro realized that it came to a point he was afraid to step into the open. And he realized he cannot continue to ignore Moshe and Aaron. So it's sort of like a relationship with a husband and wife. It comes to a point where the husband will realize that he's never, never going to win an argument. You know that. So Paro came to the realization that he's not winning over here. So he goes and he says, "Okay, let's call Moshe and Aaron to come and you know let's try to resolve this uh, this plague." The problem was, how was he going to get the message to Moshe and Aaron? He didn't want to leave his his his. Uh, um, you know, his palace, the animals were all over the place. Nobody wanted to go. So the way that they had to summon Moshe on is that they had to scream from one Egyptian to another, call Moshe, call Moshe, and it went until finally Moshe on got the, got the message, and they came to, uh, to Paro. Now, when Moshe on arrived to the throne room where Paro was, and he's, Paro goes and says, you know, it's amazing how these animals have gone through Goshen, and they did not harm any of the Jews. So he, he says, I come to the realization that there is indeed a God of the Jews, and I have to deal with him. But Paul says that, what did you want? You wanted to take the Jewish nation, to go into the desert, and sacrifice to your God, right? Moshe said, yes, that's what we want. So Paul says, and Moshe goes and says, we want to take a three-day journey to go and sacrifice. So Paul says, I see over here, your God is very powerful, and I respect him very much. But I see, at one point I thought, that you could only serve your God in the desert. And that's why you wanted to travel to the desert to serve your God. But now I see over here that the environment of, of Egypt, the, the, the habitat of Egypt was constantly changing, meaning that you could stay right here and you can worship your God right here in Egypt. You don't have to go. You don't have to travel to the desert. He's not a God of just the desert. I thought he was a God of the desert. You could do it right here, right now. I give you full permission. Go ahead. Furthermore, Paul goes and it says that your God seems like he's a God, that he's a God, his presence is everywhere. So you don't have to travel really anywhere in the world. Not three days, not one day, not zero days, not, not even... A, if God is everywhere, your God is here. If your God is here, great concept, right? Paul says, your God is everywhere, serve God right here. There's no need for you to leave Egypt. Full permission to sacrifice. So Moshe and Aaron go and say, listen, it's not practical. We can't... We can't do that. The each, your Egyptians, they worship animals. They do Avodah They do idolatry and they worship animals. We're going to go and we're going to start, um, you know, slaughtering kobanot, sacrifices to our God by killing your... He says that, you know, there's, there's going to be uh, an issue over here. Paolo says, no problem. I give you full, um, I give you full, full permission. Don't worry about it. So Moshe goes, says, but at the same point in time, it's still disrespectful. It goes against our nature. That even though the Egyptians, by the way, this is something very important, that even though the Egyptians deserve it, 
they deserve what they are going through. But it's something that if we're going to do it, even if you give us permission, the Egyptians are going to retaliate. When you deal with someone's God, it gets personal. Like when you talk about someone's mama, it gets personal. When you talk about someone's God, it gets personal over there. You could say whatever you want, Paul, from today until tomorrow, they're going to retaliate against us. We can't do it. Then Moshe Rabbeinu says, it says, Lo nachon la'asot ken. In Shemot chapter 8, verse 22, it says, it's not proper to do this. It's not proper to go and, and be a brazen into, right in front of, of all these Egyptians. The Mishnah Burah, in the first Siman, says that the trait of azut, the trait of brazenness, is extremely loathsome. It's something that you should, it's very, very inappropriate. Even, says the Mishnah Abu says the Chafetz Chaim, even when you're serving it for God. The Chassam Sofer goes and explains that, actually no, the Chafetz Chaim goes and explains that what happens is that if you serve God out of brazenness, then this trait is going to go and going to acquire even in places where there is no brazen, where, where, where it's not the service of God. Meaning once you acquire a trait, it's going to cause that trait to spill out in other areas. So the Chassam Sofer goes and explains from an ethical standpoint, it's not befitting for us to, because we know the, the Egyptians are not going to be able to tolerate this. So we, we don't want to go and do this in front of the Egyptians. Even in this case where we had the power over them. Meaning that even if the, we would say the Egyptians would not be able to retaliate against us. Still, it's not apropos. It's not right. It's not right to do that. This is an important principle of service, of the, when we serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that it's not about, we, we should not be antagonizing, we should not anger the non-Jewish people, when we go and, and we serve God, we should not you know, show, show brazenness to a certain point. And that doesn't mean we're like, well, the, the non-Jew is going to get you know, insulted if I, break, if I don't break Shabbat, so it must be I break Shabbat. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if here there's certain azub, there's certain brazenness when you act, that should not happen and, you know, to, you know, to the Gentiles. The, and this is why it's so important to have good midot that... The Chassam Sofer goes and explains that we're, with regard to prophecy, we know that Moshe Rabbeinu was the highest level. But Aaron was elevated to, to a high level like Moshe Rabbeinu. Why? Because he was someone who was Ohev Shalom. He had such midot that he was a, a lover of peace. That he made peace between a husband and wife, between friends. He brought people closer to the Torah. So because of this, because of his midot, he, the two of them were, were equal. And furthermore, it's, it's such a great Kiddush Hashem when the nations of the world take note on the good midot, the good character traits of the Jewish people. The Ramban writes, the Chmanides writes, that anyone that does business honestly and causes other people to be pleased with him is considered as if he had fulfilled the entire Torah. Midot is extremely, extremely important. Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky goes and says that to show how, how much it affects the Gentiles, he was in prison in Siberia. Now, in prison, being prison in Siberia, if you want to use an example of being in one of like the worst prisons ever, you say somebody who was in prison in, in Siberia. It, it was of excruciating, excruciating circumstances that they put people into. And in his, in, in his, uh, you know, in the, in the same prison, there was two prestigious Polish government officials that were along with him. One of them was a justice minister, another one was the education minister. And they go over to Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. And they say, you know, he was a young man at the time. He says, we see over here that you have fine midot, you have good character traits, you have good judgment. He wanted them to arbitrate and argue. that uh, They had an argument with each other and he wanted them, he wanted, uh, uh, they wanted him to, to resolve it. So, 
what happened was it turned out that the educate well the former education minister was accusing his friend which was the justice minister of stealing his pants this is what the two high officials got this is what they're arguing about and it, you know it became very quickly clear that it was true he did steal his pants and the justice minister said he said he wanted to go and bribe the cook so that he would get a larger portion of soup he says what am i going to give i don't have anything to give so i gave his pants and the Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky goes over and he says, and he starts rebuking the justice minister. He says, he says, how could you? He says, you are the justice minister. You represent justice. How are you going and you're going against justice? He's, he says, and he goes over to these two prisoners. He says, if you want to know how to behave, I want to share with you a story that, that, you know, that happened <coughs> when I was, you know, during prison. He says, you know, Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky would wake up in the morning and he would find herring and a cracker under his pillow every morning when he woke up, like a fish and, and a cracker under his pillow. Nowadays, you find a fish and a cracker under your pillow, you think someone's coming to kill you. But back then, it was food, and they would do anything for food. So he says, I found a piece of herring, a piece of fish, and a cracker under my pillow. I'm like, what's going on over here? He said, at first, I thought it was a practical joke. And I wanted to, it kept on happening, and I said, I wanted to see who is doing this, who is giving me this gift. So he's decided that one night he's going to pretend to go to sleep, but he's going to really stay up. And he did not allow, at 3 a.m., he, hear, he feels someone trying to pick up his pillow. So he jumps up, he looks around, he says, aha! And he sees over there an 85-year-old man holding a cracker and a fish. And he goes over to the 85-year-old man and says, what are you doing? Why are you giving me this food? So the old man was shocked. He goes over to, to Rabbi Yaakov Glitz, he says, listen, he says, you know, I used to be a very, very rich man. He says, and I learned that money is not worth anything. I cannot live on money. I need food over here. And, you know, I realized that this food is, is no longer, at the stage that I am, is no longer going to make a difference for me. He says, I'm going to make do with the coarse bread that I have. But you are still a young man. If you will eat the herring and the cracker, this will strengthen your body, this will give you a greater chance of survival. So Rabbi Yaakov goes over to these two ministers and he says, you know how a person should behave from one friend to another? A friend should sacrifice for the sake of the other, not the reverse. The Jewish method is that you go and you have good midot. That's how, what we represent. Being a good Jew means that you have good midot. You can't claim to yourself to be a, a religious good Jew if you don't have good character traits. There was a certain Jew, when he was being loaded in the deportation train, going to Auschwitz, they were going to their death camps. They were going to concentration camps. He calls out. He goes out to the window and he screams out to his neighbor who was standing over there. And he had a request. As he was being led away, you know what his request was? His request was to his neighbor. He says he has chickens in his backyard. He screams to his neighbor, please don't forget to feed the chickens. He says, why? Because I have a piece of bread that I want to eat. And I know there's an obligation that before, if you have pets, if you have animals, you can't eat before they eat. He says, because what a religious perspective says is that I go and I think about other people. Not only I think about other people, I think about other animals as well. And a, a, a person, they, are, they have some sort of animals, they can't eat until the animals are fed. This is what this person is thinking about as he's going, being traveled to, to the concentration camps. This is also where Chaim Palaji goes and writes, that if this person has a sick, someone sick in the house, he should give food to the birds. Why? Because the birds will act as advocates in Shemayim for this person. So as Rechaim Pelagi, if the birds will act as advocates, 
Certainly, if you're doing chesed with animals, certainly, certainly, if you do chesed with your friends and neighbors, they're going to work to your benefit. So what is going on over here? Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, we Jews, we have certain character traits. We can't start killing the animals that the Egyptians worship right in front of the Egyptians. It's not right of us. It's not our nature. Our nature of being good Jew is showing that we don't do that. We don't have that character trait. So Parol goes and says, very well. He says, I see what you're saying. I can't argue with that. He says, you know what? You could travel to the desert. But why do you got to travel three days? Travel one day. One day is more than enough. And there you could go on one condition that you pray to your God to get rid of these wild animals. So Moshe left Paul's palace to a place that he was going to pray. And he prayed that they should be gone by tomorrow. But he also prayed, he also made sure that no more Egyptians should die after, the, after he left Paolo's palace. Why? So Paolo shouldn't claim that he didn't keep part of his bargain. That the deal was that he would have to pray that there would no be no more death or destruction. And you wait until the next day and then that's when it happened. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, since then, let there be no more death in Egypt from the wild animals. And indeed, that's what happened. The following day, all the wild beasts removed, went away from, from Egypt. Not a single one remained. Think about it's one thing, a miracle, that it all comes into, um, you have animals from the entire world coming into your area. But there's another miracle where they all leave. It's easy to bring in, you know, it's easy to have guests, but when it's time for them to leave, not always do they want to leave. The tiger could be like, no, I'm kind of comfortable over here. Right? The crocodile says, no, I found my cousin Timothy over here in the, in the thing over here. I'm going to go swim in the Nile. And it's, it's very difficult. But what happened was, the second that the plague was over, they all instantly dispersed right back to where they came from. Not a single one remained. One of the reasons was is that Hashem didn't want to have the animals die in Egypt, and then the Egyptians would benefit from the hides of the animals. This was a plague. The plague was meant to teach a lesson, and there's no benefit that's coming out of this. Meaning that all the animals went, uh, you know, right out of, uh, of Egypt. Okay, the time is getting a little bit late. There's a little bit more to speak about this. And with Bezat Hashem, we'll have to continue with this, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put the, you know, the end of this, uh, class together with the next one, uh, just because of the, of the time that's, uh, that's going on, uh, that's late. Uh, but with that, we'll open up to any, uh, any questions over here. Okay. And I want to thank also, there was another one for the Egyptian name, Cleopatra. Thank you very much for that also. Cleopatra and Ramses and Kermit. Oh, it's Kermit the Frog. What did I say? Hermit the Frog? I am sorry. Okay. It's Kermit the Frog. Oh, look at that. Okay. See, we learn new things every single day. Boko time. We learned that, right? So it's Kermit the Frog. Okay. Any questions? Good. <laughs> Good. I appreciate that, and you should know that's what I try to do. And people always, you know, I when I speak to people, well, let's say sometimes some of them are speakers, and they um, they some some speakers like to say when they say a story. They like to only say a very, very short, which is true. It's good to say a short story. One of the reasons, especially stories that I make up, if I make up a story, I get very, very much into the detail. Why? Because you become part of that story and you could, you could learn from it more. It's more, it's not only a story is not only to go and, and take the final lesson out of it. But if you're more involved in the story, then it takes, it becomes part of you. You know, like 
if you get to a point where you're reading a story and then you come brings you to tears and it brings you to laughter and then there's a lesson after that that lesson is so much more powerful than if it's just like you know here's the information so thank you for that i did try to make it into a very very more of a, a little bit on the graphic side on um you know uh, you know concept on this but um there, there was a reason there was a reason for that and i hope you guys were with me in the beginning part i know it gets a little bit confusing in the beginning of the introduction uh, if you're not i strongly recommend to look at the um the introduction class that i gave it was like a 45 minute class that i sort of summarized you know now it's it's something that's very very it gives you just like a broad understanding on it but really the main point of the class is really the is really the 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 makot to try to understand it to get to a different level to try to picture it when you're coming to the sedel you're coming in there with like okay I'm leaving Egypt let me see what happened let me let me learn the midrashim let me hear what the gemara says about it okay uh, here we have a question for Pesach to what extent should we go and sell our chametz or throw it all away does it really depend on the person example single family etc um, so, so it depends on what is, so the question is what to do regarding chametz, to throw it away, to sell it. Uh, there's so many different levels of chametz over here. Uh, generally speaking, if you have something that is, for example, like bread, that should be thrown away, burnt, and things like that. You have stuff that is in the middle, you go and you sell it, or depending, depending on the situation is. If there's, if let's say you stocked up on so much, some whatever X, Y, and Z, and you don't want to get rid of it, then you sell it. There is, you're, of course, you're allowed to sell, and you're allowed to sell the chametz, and you should sell the chametz in, in many, many circumstances. If there's a particular question of what should I do in a particular item, then uh, you know I would suggest to speak to uh, your local Orthodox rabbi and what to do in that particular thing. If someone has, uh, I don't know, I, I don't even know what the example to use other than bread, cereal, whatever it is, you have a large amount of it, you could sell those things as well. But again, these are good things to ask. Um, if if when you're when you're selling it actually it's a good thing to you know to ask people think that they have to go and and destroy everything and they just start dumping you know their whiskeys down the toilet and all that or down their throats depending on which type of person you are so not you could you there's a reason you're allowed to sell it and you should sell a lot of these things uh but uh, some things you should burn and depends on the on the particular situation and that's you speak to your local orthodox rabbi okay any other questions comments concerns confusions Arguments? I think I've already done that. All right, no, okay. All right, Chazak thank you all for joining. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.